I want you to pretend with me this morning that uh, there is a church that is having struggles. I know that's hard to imagine, but work with me, okay? A struggling church in a godless city. Again, hard to imagine, right? And you know of a minister going to work in that church to help with the ministry there, and they come to you asking for advice. They come to you and they ask, what is the first thing that I should do to help this church? What would you say? Maybe prayer? You need, to, you need to pray for the work there, most definitely. Preach the word, yes. Develop a strategic plan on how to reach the lost and equip the saved. That's, that's important as well. But let me ask you this. How many of you would say one of the first things you are to do is to identify and appoint godly elders? to make decisions that benefit the body and build up the church and protect the church from false teachings and ungodliness. How many of you would go there first? Well, we know that Paul certainly prayed for the Christians that he ministered to, and that included the Christians in Crete. He spent time with them, we know, so we can assume that he probably also preached God's word to them one of his instructions to Titus was, of course, to preach the word to them. But one of the first things that he does after he leaves Titus on this wicked island was to appoint elders. That's one of the first things he tells him to do. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. You don't know where Titus is? It's in the New Testament. Find Hebrews and start flipping backwards, and you'll get there, okay? We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Titus entitled, The Right Kind of Church in a World Gone Wrong. And today we are going to talk about the importance of having the right group of leaders, the right group of elders in a world gone wrong, and how that benefits the church and helps the church make an impact in the world. In our passage for this morning, we are going to see several reasons why Paul calls for Titus to appoint elders. Several reasons for that. We're going to look at these reasons today because they give us insight into why our church needs elders, what they are to look like spiritually, how they are to function, and how they serve the church in building up the church and protecting the body. Notice point number one. The first reason why it is important to appoint elders is because, number one, elders encourage discipleship. Elders are to encourage discipleship. Look at verse 5. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Paul is first giving his representative, his man, his missionary, his appointed pastor, Titus, instruction. He's starting with Titus here. He's going to move out from there. There is a distinction that is made between Titus 
and the elders that he appoints. Titus is serving in a special position. He has been left by Paul in Crete as his apostolic representative to function as his representative and the overseer of the work there. Paul says, I have left you in Crete to preach the gospel, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He says, I have left you to put what remained in order. Now, the verb translated put into order is a double compound word, not trying to get overly technical, but it literally means to thoroughly set straight further. Okay? They, they had been set straight, the Christians here, when they first responded in repentance and faith to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They had probably been set straight further when Paul was there and ministering to them. And Paul had left Titus there to set them straight even further. They needed that. And guess what, believers? We all need that as well. We do. We don't always get it right, do we? Sometimes we do. We'll respond in a good godly way one moment, and then like Peter, we need the get-behind-me-Satan rebuke directed toward us in the next breath. Hopefully, you come here each and every week because you need to get set straight further by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. We oftentimes, we, we think in ways and we act in ways as believers that are out of line with the teachings found in God's Word. And we need instruction and correction. That's called discipleship. That is why Titus is left in Crete. But get this, he cannot do this work on his own. Just like I can't do the work of ministry on, on my own. That's something I've always realized about myself. I don't always get it right. More often than not, I get it wrong. But something I've always realized in ministry is my limitations. Great question that was asked of me by Bill Widener. Before I came to this church, he asked a great question. He asked, how was I going to go from a church of a smaller size where there were two full-time staff members and I was playing a supporting role to a church that was larger where I would be the only staff member in the main role? That was, that's a good question. It caused me to pause for a minute and then I gave a very, very simple response. I'm going to need help. I'm going to need help. Titus needed help because he, he wasn't just working in one church in a small town, but many churches on a large island. It's where context helps us. Crete was big. It was more than 3,000 square miles, made up of many towns. Paul knew this was much too big a task for just Titus. So he tells him, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You're going to need help. You're going to need good, godly elders who are, are going to help you. You're going to need that. You're going to need to appoint elders to help in the work of discipleship, to encourage discipleship, to promote it in the church and make decisions and put together ministries where people can grow in godliness 
to provide training and instruction needed so that God's people are established in truth and equipped for ministry. And notice again where this great work of discipleship is to take place in the local church. When Christ gave his great commission to his people that says, as they are going, they are to be making disciples. The local church is the place and the vehicle that Christ had in mind for this work to take place. And we see that when we read beyond the Gospels. Christ called for his disciples to make disciple-making disciples. And he established the church to be the main vehicle for discipleship. And if that's the case, doesn't it make sense then that if the local church is the vehicle through which disciples are made, it should make sense that the leaders in the church are to be the ones who are promoting, encouraging, and exampling discipleship. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave leaders to the church to do this work. He gave the church pastor teachers to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The elders here at this church, we meet together on a regular basis, and one of our main topics of conversation is what decisions need to be made, what ministries need to be implemented so that we can be more effective at making, disciple-making disciples of Jesus so that people can be escorted to Christ and established in truth and equipped for ministry. First and foremost, it needs to happen in the home. It does. Heard me say this time and time again. It's very, very important. Few of us elders with kids still at home, me and Brett, we uh, certainly understand that our kids are to be a priority. It's to be the same for all of us. I've said it before, but before committing to discipleship at this church, you must first be committed to discipleship in the home. Get this, whoever is in your household is to be priority one in your ministry. Can I say that again? Whoever is in your household is to be priority one in your ministry. If I get a call during family worship time, I won't answer it. Why? My family's my first priority. Same is true with each one of you. We as leaders also want to promote discipleship in and through the ministries of the church. Recently, in addition to involvement in small group ministries and kids ministries and individual one-on-one -on -one discipleship, we've been discussing opportunities for the elders to be more directly involved once again in leading and in discipleship ministries. As many of you know in the past who have been with us for a while, we have had elders leading FBU classes and men's Sunday night studies on marriage, small group ministry, Sunday morning preaching. But uh, recently, we've been giving a lot of our, our, our up-and-coming uh, ministers an opportunity in our church for, for opportunities to preach and teach, which is good. But in light of this study, which is good when you go through God's Word to evaluate it from the top down, in light of this study, we have been discussing ways in which we can be more directly involved in this. And, and we have come up with some things that we're going to be implementing this fall and in the spring, for example... We're going to be starting a, a family shepherd's class for dads with teens on Sunday evenings. 
during the youth time and women's Bible study. It'll be led by one of our elders. I'm going to be in attendance because, believe it or not, our oldest is starting youth. So I'm going to be there, and it's going to start September the 9th. Guys, we got a sign-up sheet in the four-year. You can sign up and sign up for books today for that. We're going to be reading Paul Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity. We're also launching another small group this fall with two of our elders leading that for, for, for newcomers. Why? Because we, we value discipleship, and we want to see more of it. Why? Because that's what the world needs most. In a world gone wrong, the church needs elders leading and promoting and encouraging and exampling discipleship in the church. Elders committed to disciple making disciples, making disciples who are making disciples in the church so that the church is built up and strong fully equipped to push back the darkness in this world with the light of the gospel. Notice the second reason why it's important to appoint elders in the church. Number two, because elders are to example godliness. Elders are to example godliness. In verses 6 through 8, we have the qualifications given for elders in the church. And before I read this passage, let me first say Christ likeness is God's aim for every Christ follower. Okay? It is. If you have been saved by God and from God, you have been saved for God to live for Him and to grow in godliness. What God wants from, from each of you is for you to move from where you are forward in your faith. And that happens in your time alone with God, in the Word, through prayer, through the inward work of God's Holy Spirit, through the church, through your brothers and sisters in Christ pouring into you and, and sharpening you. However, for God's people to grow in godliness, the, the church must first appoint good godly leaders, spiritually strong. They want the church to be godly, healthy, and strong. Their leaders must be godly and healthy and strong. Like we said, the church will only be as healthy as its leaders. We talked about that last week. Notice the kind of elder that Paul tells Titus to appoint. He mentions several virtues and a few vices here in this list. Let's look at the list. Next slide there. And let's break this down. Notice first that an elder is to be blameless. Blameless. Look, look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, Paul calls Titus to appoint elders who are blameless, who are above reproach. Now, let me say this. He is not calling for him to appoint elders who are grace graduates. Those who are perfect, glorified. If that were the case, if we discovered that was the meaning of this text, then I would have to step down today from being an elder. Above reproach just means without accusation. Not perfect, not Christ incarnate, but one who is mature and godly and who is viewed by others as being mature and godly. John Calvin defined it in this way, one who is not marred by disgrace. I like that. One who is not marred by disgrace. And if you want more specifics on what it looks like, just keep reading. He's going to tell us. 
in addition to blameless. Paul calls for Titus to appoint an elder who is a one-woman man, a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. Now, there is a lot of disagreement on this. As many of you know, I heard once that if you uh, read 14 commentaries, you'd have 10 different opinions and twice as many applications on this. At the most basic level, this is what Paul means. The phrase refers to someone who is married to one woman and living in harmony with her. One who is sexually pure, one who is faithful, committed to his his spouse faithfully. Does that mean that a, a widower cannot be an elder? Because it says husband of one wife. Is that what that means? No. What about someone who has been divorced? before salvation or had grounds for divorce not necessarily according to this verse of scripture I knew a pastor who was a Jehovah's Witness and he became a believer and his wife wasn't following she remained committed to being a Jehovah's Witness and and left him what about what about that guy what about someone who is single but, but mature and godly? Paul talks about the spiritual potential of those who remain single in, in 1 Corinthians. No, that's not what Paul is getting at here. He is simply saying of those selected who are married, they need to be committed to that one woman and living faithfully with her, one who is sexually pure, one who is committed and faithful to his wife. I brought an article uh, with me today written by John MacArthur. If all else fails, just appeal to John MacArthur, right? So uh, you can take that with you. He does an excellent job on this. So, uh, so if you have an issue with what I've said, just uh, contact Grace to you and let John MacArthur know, okay? All right. Good. Now take that with you. Take that with you for, for reading, okay? Now, while they do not have to be married, I do believe that Paul is directing Titus toward certain godly leaders who are because it is easier to judge how men will, will lead by the way they manage their household. So that's a good indication there. And of course, with those with questionable past, he's dealing with the present, you want to appeal back to being above reproach as well. So you want to go to that previous verse as well and apply that to the individual if they have something in their past when it comes to the marriage relationship. But an example would be, you know, if you, you have a husband and a father who is a candidate, who is faithful to his wife, manages his household well. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Paul is telling Timothy to take a close look at those guys and consider them because you can tell a lot about how a man will lead in the church by the way in which he handles things in the home and in his private life. Notice what else? He is to be a family shepherd and his Children are believers, we're told, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, while not age-specific here when it comes to children, this does mean, I believe, those who are still in the house, kids who are still under, under their parents' roof. Now, there, there are some different interpretations on this as well because of that word believers. Some interpret this to mean that they must be 
Christians, but the word translated believers is also translated faithful or well-behaved, okay? And that's why in the Holman Christian Standard Version and the New King James Version, they translate it having faithful children, children that heed the instruction of the family shepherd. If children must be believers, then I should not have been an elder when I started here because our girls were too young. They weren't believers yet. Now, two of them have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, but the verdict is still out on that young rascal, right? Now, now, be praying for joy. We, we, are, we are witnessing to her and praying for her every day. She's a sweetheart. So what I believe Paul's talking about here is, is having a, a well-ordered home with, with parents parenting toward that end. But ultimately, folks, who saves? God saves, right? Yeah. No matter what you do, you can't get in and change the human heart. That's a work of God alone. It's ultimately God who saves. We can't save our children, but we are the instruments that God has chosen to use. And we're to be faithful. We're to be parenting toward that end. It doesn't guarantee salvation, but, but it is the right path for us to take to, to lead there, right? The elders to look for in the church are those committed to raising their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and a child responding well to that instruction. That, according to Paul, is what one should look for when looking at an elder. Ligon Duncan said this of the passage. Look at uh, this quote here. He said, elders who are to promote godliness in the congregation should be promoting godliness in their homes. Very true. An elder is also to be a good steward. That's not on the uh, screen. I, I'd skip that one, not on purpose, but you have it in your notes. Good steward. Look at verse 7. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. Elders are to be God's stewards. They are to understand that God owns everything. They are simply managers for the master and have to give an account to him for how they spend his money in the church. The, the way they spend their time, how they use their time and, and the money in the church is, is to be for kingdom work. And, and one way we as elders remain accountable to you is we have, of course, a finance committee and we have, we have Carol posting each month what the monthly budget is, the monthly giving and the monthly spending. We also have a more detailed line by line uh, a budget that you can uh, also have upon request, okay? We want to be accountable in that way. Paul calls for Titus to call upon elders who are not self-willed. He says he must not be arrogant. One who is, is not always pushing to have things his own way. One who sees things from, from others' perspective and, and one who is open to, to suggestions and not uh, takes criticism well, takes criticism well. He is, to be, he is not to be self-willed. He is not to be easily angered. Again, same verse. He must not be quick-tempered. He should be someone who has his emotions in check. This one is hard for me. This is a struggle for me. Always has been. Pray for me. Pray for me on this. Because a spiritually mature man 
One who is blameless is one who has this in check. He does not fly off the handle. Sober, not a drunkard. That doesn't need much explaining, but I like the way Swindoll puts it in his great uh, commentary on Titus. Look at this quote up on the screen. Those who frequently fail to recognize their limits regarding alcohol, moreover, an elder carefully avoids surrendering control of his body to the effects of any substance. Titus was also instructed by Paul to appoint a person of peace, one who is not violent. Again, we're talking of someone who has his emotions in check, one who is not easily irritable and argumentative and combative, someone not greedy for gain. Boy, do we see some leaders in ministry failing at this. Extreme example here recently was the guy that was Asking uh, Jesus for an extra jet to add to his collection. Trying to attain wealth by disgraceful means. At times, you see leaders compromise the truth of God's word to gain popularity and for personal benefit. I've said it before, but you can make a lot of money in ministry if you develop the skill of telling people what they want to hear. You can Elders are also to be hospitable. One who opens up his home to people for the purpose of ministry uses his resources to minister and shepherd others. One who greets visitors with a warm welcome and and seeks to plug them in to the ministries of the church so that they will be escorted to Christ and established in truth and equipped for ministry. Paul also instructs Titus to appoint elders who are lovers of good. You ever been talking to someone about the wonderful work that, that God is, is doing in someone's heart in life or the wonderful work that he's doing in the church and the person you're talking with just gets a, an enormous smile on their face and, and tears well up in their eyes and you're just crying and praising God together and worshiping him for the great work that he's doing? That's what it means to be a lover of good. Elders are to be lovers of what is good. They are to make decisions in ministry toward this end. They are to have a desire to see broken lives restored and redeemed and have a desire to see see God use his church to do this work. Self-control. Self-control when it comes to one's emotions again, when it comes to moral purity, when it comes to greed, when it comes to dealing with people in the church. He must also be devout. I think that covers the last three pretty well. Look at it, verse 8. Upright, holy, and disciplined. Elders must be set apart from the world, sold out to God, should faithfully walk with Him and be growing in godliness. Now let me tell you, folks, this is a tough list. It is. And when you read it, What you should be doing is is not simply pulling out your checklist and and begin scrutinizing and criticizing the leaders of the church and say, I know Graham struggles with keeping his emotions in check. He lost his patience with me last week. That's a tally mark. Not saying there shouldn't be accountability. There should. But what this list should lead you to do is not be the whole monitor when it comes to elder qualifications, but instead it should lead you to pray. To pray 
pray for the elders. I'll be honest with you. When I'm reading some of these through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's a humbling thing. I know the guys would agree with me. Listen to what Ligon Duncan said on this. I don't have this quote up there, but I, I, I wrote it down. I like it. He said, nothing will shrink you to the size of an atom ant more quickly than having this passage read out in front of people who know you. It's true. It should lead you to pray for us as elders. Pray that God, by his grace, would continue to mold us and make us into the leaders that he's called for us to be. This week, you're going to have the opportunity to do that. You have in your bulletin a study guide that, that really functions this week primarily as a prayer guide for your elders. Would you commit to pray for your elders this week, to go through that guide, to sit down with your, your, your family in your home and take time just each and every day to pray for us? We're going to be uh, meeting later on this week as elders and, and I'm going to try to get with guys throughout the week to discuss some matters of business but something else we're going to be doing is we're going to be just meeting to pray through this passage for each other so this passage it, it should lead you to pray for your elders but you're not off the hook it should also lead you to pray for you Again, this is not simply the character qualities God expects of his leaders, but of everybody in this church. It should start with the leadership, but it should not stop there. In a world gone wrong, the church needs the right group of elders who meet and exceed these character qualities who lead God's people to do the same. So that's the reason it's important to appoint elders because elders encourage discipleship, they example godliness, third and finally, they defend doctrine. This is a big one, and we're going to talk more about it next week. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Underline that. I love that. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For the churches on the island of Crete to be healthy and built up, to be protected from and make an impact on this godless island, Paul told Titus to go to the churches in each of the towns and appoint elders who are mature Christ followers, devout and disciplined, who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That means in its proper context, holding to the true meaning of the text of Scripture so that they would be able to dispense truth and combat heresy this is what god expects from his leaders elders are called to read god's word and study god's word and know god's word and teach god's word and defend god's word elders god calls for us to lead by being zealots for what is true he doesn't simply want us to be interested in what is true, support what is true, sort of give a head nod to what is true. He wants us to know truth, be consumed with truth, hold fast to truth, teach what is true, and defend the truth. How do we do that? We've got to study God's Word. 
We got to become students of God's word. We got to study God's word privately and corporately. We need to dissect his word with pen in hand, with commentary and commentaries and theology books nearby. We need to be sitting under the expositional preaching and teaching of his word on Sunday mornings and through the ministries of this church. We have to soak in what is being said from Scripture chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And again, this is not something that is just to be true of the elders only, but of every Christ follower in the church. Believers, God wants us all to be sound doctrinally so that we're not led astray and, and so that the church would be protected from false teachings and built up in the right way, in the way that honors Almighty God. That's what God wants. And elders, leaders, it, it starts with us, but it should not stop there, believers. In a world gone wrong, the church needs the right group of elders functioning in this way and needs the body to follow. Well, to end, let me say this, because God clearly states here through his apostle in this passage that elders are to know truth, believe truth, teach truth, and defend truth as an elder of this church. I'm going to end this morning just by sharing with you what I know to be true from Scripture. In life... There are several big foundational questions that most everyone asks at one time or another. Questions like, does God exist? If so, what's he like? What does he do? Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? How will that which is broken be made right once again? All of those questions and more are answered by God in his word. Most of those questions are answered in the first few chapters of his word. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see in the first book, chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that before the beginning began, God existed. He has always and will always. God created all that is. From nothing and everything that he created is good. He created man and woman in his own image. He brought them together as man and wife. He said it's very good. And man and woman lived in right relationship with one another and in right relationship with God under his authority. But that changed because man turned away from God stepped out from under his authority, sinned against him. And as a result of that sin, sin entered into the world, ruined and wrecked God's perfect world, shattered man's relationship with God, and death came as promised as a result, both physical and spiritual death. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, before Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and our children of wrath. That all came as a result of the fall. And listen, God could have chosen to wash his hands of man completely. He could have wiped us all out, maybe start again, but he, he came close, didn't he? But he ultimately allowed for sinful man to remain, to remain with a promise of a future redemption for man 
through his appointed man, the God-man, his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, we're told in Scripture that God sent his Son, God the Son, to earth. And we're told that his Son came willingly and emptied himself and took on flesh. He lived the life Adam failed to live. He lived the life we failed to live, the perfect life, a life in unbroken fellowship with the Father and in complete submission to him. Christ lived the perfect life for us and we're told that he fulfilled all righteousness in our place. And that's not all. Not only did Christ live for us, he died for us. He didn't deserve to die because we're told he was tempted like we are but was without sin. But instead, Christ willingly laid his life down. He took our sin on himself. He endured the, the punishment and the shame reserved for us. He endured both the physical agony of the beatings and the nails of crucifixion and the spiritual anguish of, of God's wrath at Calvary so that through his wounds we might be healed. Christ went all the way for us, folks. From heaven to earth, to the cross, to the grave, and back out again, all the way back up to the right hand of the Father on high. And he did all of that. He accomplished that great work so that those of us who look to him and believe on him and trust in him could be saved, could have salvation, could have life, in his name could be forgiven and restored to God that's the truth that's the gospel so I want to leave you with the most important question this morning and it's this are you trusting in God's son alone for your salvation today no question more important to answer than that one is he your Lord have you turned from your sin? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus today? If not, I pray that you would. I urge you today, this very hour, to give your life up and over to Jesus. Trust in him alone for your salvation. Make him Lord today and be saved. Let's pray together.